Let's turn to the word. Would you open to Romans 1 with me, please? We're in a sermon series on Romans 1 through 4. And uh, we're picking up in Romans 1, uh, verse 18, through the end of the chapter this morning. If you're using one of our Bibles, I think it's page 780. Okay, I want you to I want you to imagine, and I want you to really try to imagine this, okay? So don't just humor me. Try to really climb into this, this idea. I want you to imagine that you have been um, accused of a great crime. And you are waiting, you're in the courthouse, but you're not in the room. You're in the hallways of the courthouse. You're about to be brought into the courthouse. And you know it's not looking good for you. You know, uh, deep down inside, you know you did it. And you know that the courtroom is not going to be kind to you, that it, there's, it's socially, it's charged, there's anger, there's going to be accusation when you walk in, it's going to be a hostile room. And you're alone. All you have is your defense attorney, and his name is Paul. And right before they usher you in, you know, feet in chains, right before they usher you in to stand up before the judge, uh, Paul, your attorney, looks to you and says to you, do you trust me? He looks you straight in the eye and he says, do you trust me? And you look and you say, yeah, I trust you. And he says, no, 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 no. Do you trust me? And you say, yeah, I trust you. And the doors swing open, and you get hauled in. And as soon as you walk into the room, you hear the noise and the fingers and the shouting and the accusations coming down, and you're, you're in chains, and you're feeling smaller and smaller, and you're, you're nervous, and you're shaking, and the gavel's slamming to establish order in the room because everything, everyone knows you're guilty. And finally, your defense attorney stands up and looks at you and then looks at the judge And then he turns and says, Your Honor, I am here to declare that my client is guilty. Your attorney does that. The defense attorney points his long bony finger at you and says, he did it. And when you thought he was maybe going to say, well, he didn't know it was a crime. In fact, what your, de- your de- attorney says is he knew it was a crime. And you thought, well, maybe he was going to say he didn't understand the nature of the crime. But your defense attorney is going to say, and not only did he know it, he, he understood exactly what he was doing. And you're thinking, well, maybe what he's going to say is, is, but it was a crime of passion. But your defense attorney goes on to say in his opening statement, it was a cold-hearted, premeditated crime. That he did. And he goes on to talk about how not only did you do it and you knew that you were doing it and you were premeditated in doing it, you've wanted to do it. You're part of an organization of rebels. You want to object, but he's your attorney. And this is your defense. If we trust him, we're forced to realize that somehow our hope for life begins with the argument that we are woefully and willfully guilty. Let's pray.
Lord, as we approach this very plain and challenging part of your word, Lord, I pray that we would remind ourselves that you are on our side. And that you are building our only case for defense, which is in Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me just one verse real quickly. Romans 1, verse 18. It says this. The wrath of God is being... And I'll just stop halfway through here. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The wrath of God, it says, is being revealed. The wrath of God. Now, before we go any farther in this text, because it's very easy to pick up here and to read the wrath of God is being revealed and to get the sense that uh, God is all of a sudden angry, I want to remind you that the very person who's writing this opens his letter with, I'm a servant of Christ called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel to which I bring to the Gentiles. So the very person that's saying about mankind that the wrath of God is being displayed against mankind because of their godlessness and wickedness who suppress the truth of God, they suppress the truth, that very person just said, I'm called to those people. In the opening verses of Romans, he says, my calling, my distinct calling for which I was set apart was to bring the hope of the gospel to the people, particularly the people who've never even heard of God. And in fact, this is the one who just said, right, the one who's right now saying the wrath of God is being revealed, said in verse 17, one verse ago, for in the gospel, a righteousness of God is being revealed. Same guy. Those ideas feel like they're an ocean apart. They are a sentence away. And the sentences between them is the righteous shall live by faith. So as we read this, as we read this this section of Scripture, let's be reminded that God is for us, Paul is for us, that Christ has through God, a righteousness has been revealed through faith and that the goal, the purpose of this entire kind of exhortation on the gospel is to get us to turn and receive that righteousness by faith. And I say this because as we read, you're going to want to defend yourself. That's what you're going to want to do. And I just want to say, don't. Don't. He's on your side. And you're going to want to deflect you're going to want to say, ah, I, that's not me. I, I, I didn't do all of that. You know, that, that adjective doesn't describe it. I'm just, just, just don't. Just soak it in. This is your defense we're talking about. And you're going to say, well, what about the African in the jungle? Or what about the guy who never, this is you in court. Don't worry. That person, he's not in the room. This is about you in the dock before the magistrate that's hearing these words. And lastly, you're going to want to put God on trial. Some part of you is going to say, well, what kind of God? And I'm here to say, you're the one on trial. Like, let God be God and let the defense speak for you.
And here's what he says. I'm going to read the first three verses, 18 through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So who's he talking about real quickly? I think uh, probably the best way to think about this is this is a general statement about humanity, about mankind, the every man sort of idea. Very wide scope, okay? So what's going to be said? I agree not all of what he's about to say is always true about everyone all the time everywhere, okay? But everything he says is generally true about us, particularly as you assign it to culture. And we cannot simply say, well, this is true about culture without taking some sort of culpability from that. You comprise our culture. We collectively create culture. So we'll be able to see, well, this is certainly true about culture, which makes it somewhat true about us. That's, that's what Paul, as our kind of the opening argument is, he's, he's going to preach this loud and hard to demonstrate the reality that it's generally true about all of us. That's what he's going to be doing. And in this first section, we see... Um, a big idea, well, a couple big ideas. The first one is the wrath of God, which we'll answer in a moment. But the second, this, the first big idea that I really want to deal with this thought is this, that our godlessness and wickedness as people has caused us to actively suppress God's revelation of himself, which he has Actively displayed. What I'm saying is, is God has gone to great lengths to actively display himself. The invisible God has gone through great effort to show himself visible to us. Through, the, through nature and all these things, not the least of which, in fact, the most of which is his son. The giving of his son is the image of the invisible God. That's Colossians 1. That's who he is that God has gone through great lengths to make his invisible personhood visible and understandable to us, and yet we have suppressed that revelation because of our godlessness and wickedness. That's what it's saying here. That's what Paul's saying here. And as a result, we are without excuse. What I'm saying is, is if in your belly you're saying, well, but I didn't know. You knew. That's what he's saying. You knew. He's saying, but I didn't think I knew. And he's saying, if you didn't think you knew, it's because because of your wickedness and your godlessness, you have suppressed the knowledge. Yeah, but God, you know, how am I supposed to derive God from a sunrise? And he was like, what you have gleaned is immaterial. God himself has made it plain to you. And by the way, anyone in this room has way more than a sunrise from which to glean the revelation of God. I've got 1,200 pages 
of description that you have, all of us have, collecting dust on a shelf. The big thought is mankind is absolutely culpable. It says, therefore, man is without excuse. The question of culpability, the question of should we have known? Yes. Why didn't we know? Not because of something God didn't do, but because of our suppressive character is what the scripture is saying. Mankind actively suppresses the active revelation of a loving God. And because of that, they receive wrath. Now, wrath sounds like a dirty word to us because of the way we think about it in the human, human realm. This is, a, this is how I would have you think about wrath. Wrath is God's perfect justice that levies a verdict of righteous punishment upon his created creatures who have actively suppressed his revelation because of their godlessness and wickedness. That's the first big idea. It's true about mankind. We are truth suppressors. Okay, let's read 21 through 23. It gets worse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. See, Paul goes even farther in our, his defense case for us. He goes even farther. He, he says they did not simply suppress the revelation of God. He says they actually knew God. It's different. Paul is saying, actually, they had a knowledge of God which they have suppressed out of their system. Is what's happening here. Though they knew God. What, what he's saying is, is, is God has somehow, in fact, you'll find in this very passage, is that people will say, God has put in people that we're wired for worship. We're going to worship something. We are, we are worshipful beings. That is because God has made us with a knowledge of him, which when we suppress we exchange for things like man, birds, animals, and reptiles. Because we have suppressed the image of God. And we see it here, this idea of exchanging. It surfaces for the first time here that they have exchanged, he says, the glory of the immortal God for the images made to look like Man, birds, animals, and reptiles. And this idea of exchanging is, is the second big thought in, in Paul's argument. He says, first of all, they suppress. They are culpable because they suppress the knowledge of God. They suppress the righteousness of God. And God's made himself plain, so they're fully culpable. He says, next, what's happened is because they suppress the truth, they exchange the truth for a lie. That's what he's saying here in the scriptures. Is they've exchanged the truth for a lie. They twist the truth. This is how it sounds. It sounds in our world when we, we exchange the truth, we use phrases like studies show. That's the way that we exchange the truth of God is we do a study. We talk about fashion. We talk about it's just, ooh, that's not culturally acceptable anymore. Or we evolve on an issue. 
This is the irony. The irony of evolving on an issue is theologically moving, moving away from God, moving away from the garden, moving away from the creator himself. It's devolving. It's approaching the grave. It's digging your own grave and climbing into it. But we twist God's laws and we try to make life work. And this brings us to the third idea. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Let's just stop there for a second. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart. God handed them over. Remember in the very beginning, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men. What is the wrath of God? This is the wrath of God. This third idea. The wrath of God, which is, so there certainly is in, in the story of God a judgment day where his wrath will kind of consummate and close things out. Okay, that's one kind of wrath. The wrath that's being spoken in here is an ever-present notion of wrath that we are accruing and experiencing in this life. Okay, it is being revealed. It is currently now roaming the earth, this this form of wrath, this expression of wrath. And as it is said here, the way it's defined in the scripture is is that the wrath of God is this. Are you ready? That he gives you over to your desires. That is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is is that when he has someone who is God-hating in his hand, who's biting his fingers to get out, that God says, okay, all right. That's... That's the wrath of God here. It's, it's God granting the prayerful wish of the person who hates God that they might be able to live fully in their twisted reality. The wrath of God is the bequeathing to us the natural consequences of a life we've actively chosen because we have actively chosen it because we've actively suppressed the revelation of God which he's actively shown to us so we are without excuse And as a result, we have exchanged the knowledge of God for a lie. And we're living by a different set of rules. And as a result of that, the wrath of God is being displayed to us. And the way it is being displayed to us is by us being given over to the very thing we so deeply desire. Here's an example. Because the laws of God, we, we have this way of talking about the laws of science as though they're somehow different than the laws of God, even though God is God of science, and God made those laws. And the laws of science are every bit, every bit the same as the laws of God. The laws are. And so when we exchange these spiritual laws, it's, it's, this will sound ridiculous, but this is exactly what it's like. It is as though we began to evolve on the issue of gravity, After thinking about it, we began to suppress the notions that things always move towards the center of the earth, and we began began to do studies that life is actually healthier if we nail our furniture to the ceiling and tried to live there. It sounds ridiculous. This is what's happening, is we are turning the home upside down. 
And what ends up happening is it's now because we're trying to live in a world that's upside down, the Lord hands us over so that we fall. And now we walk around bruised, but because we're truth suppressors and we're God exchangers, we now have to do something about the bruises, which means we begin to do studies on that. And so now we need to begin to say that bruises aren't negative, they're normal. Actually, they're to be expected. Actually, they're beautiful and they're courageous bruises. We either do that or we begin to blame the hard floor. And the reality is, is that our children grow up in a world that is upside down. That's what the scriptures are saying. The scriptures are saying we twist the truth and then God gives us over to the twisted consequences that come out of it. This whole argument is these three ideas. We are culpable because we suppress. In our suppression, because of our wickedness and guilelessness, we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and as a result, God gives us over to our confused and wicked reality as wrath. And the rest of the chapter is simply to, to paint that, to paint this issue. I'm going to read, I'm going to read it. I'm going to follow through with it. And I just want you to hear. I want you to hear the theme of exchange handed over, exchanged, given over, exchanged, turned over. I want you to hear this, this theme as we read through. Just let me, I'm going to pick up in 22, and I'm just going to read through 32. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served, created things rather than the Creator who has forever praised on them. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, now listen to this part. I want you to hear in it the language of Paul writes, the fullness of sin. Okay? Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. These are the opening remarks of our attorney on our behalf. We are culpable because of our godlessness and wickedness. We have actively suppressed the truth that God has actively made known. And because of that, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie for which we have received the wrath of God, which is the natural consequences of our sinful and confused reality.
the God we have known we suppressed and exchanged and are rightly being turned over. That's what he's saying here. Now, despite our attorney's good intentions, some of you, I'm sure, are building a defense. First of all, some of you are saying, not me. Some of you are saying, this is, oh, this is the non-believer. It feels like me. I'm a believer. Not all of it all the time everywhere, but certainly we can identify with this. Certainly you are not so holy as to have forgotten the fact that you once did these things in abundance. The reality is, here's a holiness test. The holier you truly become, the more mindful you become of what you really were and how far you are really from righteousness. The more righteous we become, we become to the notion that true righteousness is accelerating away from us. So we go, we draw faster and faster to the cross of Christ, only to know that the cross of Christ is receding farther and farther away. That's true holiness. So if you think to yourself that you don't do these things, it's because you've suppressed the truth of God because of your godlessness and wickedness. And you've exchanged his truth for a lie. Another defense you're wondering is, is what, about, what about the African in the jungle? Because you're thinking, well, he doesn't know about Jesus. So this is true, but you can't hear. And this, at first, I want to say, he's not here and you are. So we cannot escape the nagging question of us. God clearly cares for the African in the heart of the jungle. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. God cares about the African in the jungle. Paul, set apart for the Gentile world, for the non-Jewish world to go to the nations. Clearly, he cares about the African in the jungle. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Clearly, he cares about the African in the jungle. And you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Clearly, he cares about it. The reality that I find that stuns me all the time is the church sits in passivity and mulls over the question about the African in the jungle, about instead of going to the African in the jungle, which is our call. But instead, we want to sit here and go, I wonder if it's true about them, to which we are culpable. for suppressing the call of God in our life. Some of you are, you're hesitant to maybe buy into this because you don't know where he's going. You know, if you knew where the lawyer was going, it would be a little bit easier. This is what he's doing. So I'll just tell you what he's doing. He is removing every single thing in our spirit that would incline us to make a defense on our own account. That's what Paul is trying to do for us. Is if we're in the court 
in a few moments, we're going to be called up to testify on our own behalf. And what Paul is doing, Paul is making it so bad for us. And we're going to experience three more weeks of this. He's going to be so exhaustive about rooting out any inclination whatsoever to open our mouth before the Lord and make our own defense. That's what he's doing. The merciful gift of this unbelievably hard part of Scripture is to silence the defendant before Jesus Christ. That's what he's trying to do. He wants us, when we finally get up there, to say, I have no defense. I'm guilty. I can only rely on the work of the cross. He's on our side. What we say about the cross and how we live are often two different things. And the size of the cross, the size of the work of Christ, has everything to do with the way we think about our own sense of righteousness. Do you realize the more, the more and more you think you actually are contributing to the cross to the, or to your faith, or to the throne, or to your judgment, the more and more you think you actually do have something to say to God when you're called to judgment. As the more and more you do that, the smaller the work of Christ comes. He's shrinking the cross down into nothing. The work of Christ in our life varies with the amount of culpability we accept. A strong believer. A strong believer has a humble awareness of the fact that they are guilty and they accept it. A weak believer reads these passages and uses them as a way of being judgmental to the outside world. That is what Westboro Baptist Church does. That's what a person who thinks they are, they do in fact have some kind of righteousness that's intrinsic to them that makes a contribution to the world. We need to remember that God set Paul apart to reach these people with the hope of Christ, to bring a righteousness, to reveal a righteousness which is of God, which comes through faith, to bring that to them. Christ came for these people, and you and I were once these people. I'll close with this scripture. This is from 1 Corinthians. This is Paul writing to that church. Not unlike our own. He says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revelers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. It's my hope that as we're called to testify on our own behalf, we would rest silently in the defense of Christ.